This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, and I am a slightly sick Chris Kreitcho, so if my voice cuts out or sounds like a pubescent boy at any point during the episode, you know why. It's not just because you sound like a pubescent boy all the time? <laughs> no, turns out no. <laughs> and I'm Stephen Carradini, and I am a slightly sleep-deprived, but very happy to have a second Because he has a family. second baby welcome little miriam to join slightly less little sam that's right that's right so yep that's me seem caradini so we're both not at (laughs) optimal strength but because we're committed to winning slowly and to getting schedules out roughly on time this year that's one of our macro goals indeed personally and professionally we're here and we're going to talk about something that it really fits into the context of the season nicely so as we're talking about setting out a positive vision for the future or a a forward-looking agenda, whatever you want to call it. Chris hates when I name things. so um, (laughs) Well, it's okay. You hate when I name things, or at least when I name name your things. (laughs) Yeah, I don't care when you name other (laughs) other things. Not not myself. I'm an an individual. Notably, I also did not name (laughs) Stephen's children. He he and Barbara did that That's true. That's true. (laughs) So... uh, in that forward-going vision, there are lots of different things that other people have already put forward. And so some people have said, hey, we need a return to total localism. And this has echoes in some of the, the Christian thought that's happening. Um, we'll link some of the more obvious and, and large strands of that particular movement. This also has some secular motion in return to the land and small thinking and sustainable farming and these sorts of things. And we'll link mm-hmm. some of those. But what we're interested in is that it seems like an easy rush to go from, okay, so big did not work out the way we thought it would. Let's go <laughs> back to small. That's, a, that's not a bad impulse, but we perhaps would like to note that this might not just be the best overall carte blanche idea. And this should surprise no one because in general, overall carte blanche ideas are things that we look at and say, hmm, interesting things there. Let's add some nuance. That's basically yeah. the winning slowly modus operandi. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that stands in tension here is that the instinct to move back to the local is good and right in many ways. Many of the problems we've noted over the years come down to ways that the local has fractured. So when we talk about community life, some of the impacts that the internet has had on local community life have been to increase and accelerate fracturing that was already happening in the course of Basically, all of modernity after the Industrial Revolution and everything that went along with that. And there have been goods that come out of that. The fact that we can have this podcast and broadcast it to people who are interested in things we might have to say, but who don't live respectively in Arizona or Colorado. And for that matter, the fact that Stephen lives in Arizona and I live in Colorado. We are distinctly non-local to each other. This is a non-localized phenomena you are engaging in right now. So there are these goods that happen out of the internet and out of the industrial revolution and other things that way. There are also bads that happen out of these things. And a lot of those entail breakdowns of community and community norms and so on. And so there is a good and healthy pausing to ask, how might we recover those? And recognizing that a lot of the inhumane effects 
of technology are functions of scale. Stephen and I talked in prepping this whole season that one of the fundamental questions that confronts us is how to deal with the inhumane and or dehumanizing aspects of technologies at massive scales. And one of the obvious answers is, well, just get rid of scale and go back to the local. And and a quick a quick note on the dehumanizing aspect of scale. We don't mean that as like a critical theory, sort of, you are less of a person because you've <laughs> been subjected to this type of activity. We mean it in the sense that in, in the context of Facebook, you're literally just a number in a database, and that number has a bunch of things attached to it, and those can be served ads. That's what we mean by dehumanizing. Facebook doesn't care about you as a person, and that's not like a statement of like hot take. Like That's just <laughs> what it is. Like, right. They not care about you as a person. They care about you as a number that they can serve ads to. And so that's what we mean by dehumanizing, not in the, I mean, we could also think about how perhaps some of those critical theory ideas do play out. But in this specific context that we're talking about right now, we're talking about the the sort of pedantic uh, sort of basic level of dehumanization. As right. And I, I would say that that basic level of dehumanization actually ends up feeding the other kinds of dehumanization. It's foundational. I think to it, it does as well. Yeah, I think it does. But I think that's a whole other it is set a much- of different set of concerns and and different address approach sort of ways, all of those different words. So I I guess we could say it's a technical versus social distinction. I think right now we're talking about the technical and because the rest of this episode, we'll be talking specifically about some of the technical problems, right? We will definitely touch on some of the social problems. And we already touched on some of the social problems when we talked about the soil doesn't scale and some of those. So we're definitely not bifurcating them overall, but today. Right. The emphasis is more on the technical side of it today. And of course, we, we're we not bifurcating them because they're inseparable. They're right. inherently linked to each other. We just don't have an hour. No. <laughs> Nor an hour worth of voice in my case. That's, yeah. Yeah. The thing that we have to consider when we look at returns to local polities and structures and communities is that as good as they are, and as good as they can be, there are also a couple very serious kinds of limits to the goods of local communities. One is, in fact, that same matter of scale. It is very difficult in a small farming community of 100 people total to put on a concert like the one I took my daughters to for Star Wars May the 4th, and you'll note that that was May the 3rd, but they did it two days because it was so popular. And they played the Colorado Springs Philharmonic, a whole bunch of Star Wars music, and there were almost 100 people in the orchestra. There are things that very small local communities may or may not be able to do. So scale has positive effects as well, and it's really important to remember that in these discussions because... Shout out to regional community orchestras in upstate New York. We love you. True story. It I I do not in any sense mean to diminish the capabilities of small communities. They're quite extraordinary. It's just less likely. It's it's less likely. It's more difficult. And there are kinds of quality levels, for example, with an orchestra that are hard to attain to because your your population source is smaller, etc. Basically, this is all just a way of fending off the Wendell Berryites who want everything <laughs> to not be in a city. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's definitely important. It's really valuable. And there's there's ways beyond just the the scale, the mass number of people that you put together and you you get positive like art things and exactly, even, you know, community effort type things like community centers and these these sorts of things. But the the bigger set of challenges is one that I think 
is worth pointing a bit at American history here on and to think about the ways in which local institutions often failed catastrophically and essentially required national-level interventions. And both of these are horrible stains on American history having to do with race relations, namely slavery and Jim Crow. All the localism in the world served ultimately and unfortunately to reinforce those institutions. Yeah, and that was and that was done structurally through laws, but also through signage on water fountains and on uh, doors and on cars. And right, on- and social life and the right. all the dark sides of the good things that can happen in small local communities. And so when we look at those and when we consider that Sad to say, massive federal intervention, in the first case in the form of outright civil war, and in the second case in the form of use of troops that did not amount to war, but boy, were there some riots and there were troops involved. So, Well, I mean, yeah, there there were riots and troops involved on the state level, and the federal government came in to basically tell them to sit down and stop being uh, abusing their power and such. Exactly. And so one of the challenges for any localist movement on that front is just to recognize— To not do that. Yeah, don't do that. But to recognize, first and foremost, that localist impulses won't save you from human sin. Human brokenness will come out in different ways at any level of structure. So we need that as the backdrop— just as the thing we have to have in the back of our minds as we go look at some very specific, much less fraught examples on the technical end. Because we're not going to spend this whole episode talking about that very thorny, very gross part of American history, but we need that backdrop to remember that localism has some good things going for it, but it is no less easily perverted to great evil than is stuff at city scales or national scales or supranational or scales. Facebook scale. Right. Those things can have different kinds of scales of impact, but sometimes localism goes really bad too. So with that really, really gloomy backdrop, let's talk about let's the talk actual about technical. internet. Let's talk about the internet. Because this is running slowly. That is indeed yeah. how we roll. Yeah. So we're going to contrast Chattanooga, Tennessee, and China today. <laughs> how are they different? <laughs> so many ways. <laughs> Let's begin. But they both start with CH, Stephen. They actually do. It's really great. It's like parallelism. And then they just go like, I'm making a diversion uh, hand gesture here. Okay. Don't so, worry. I got a screenshot, readers. It'll be in the, in the show notes. So here's the deal. Internet is a global phenomenon. It requires fiber optic cables running under various oceans of the world to work at a basic level. Now, Technically, it gets even more complicated than that, but that's all you really need to know for the context of this particular episode is that if you don't have transatlantic and transpacific cables, you wouldn't be able to get the internet as fast and in some cases would not be able to get the parts of the internet that you're looking for at all because servers actually live in various places and they have to send data from this place to that place. So in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they were having a problem where they could not get telecom companies to come and give them good internet. And there's a long history, and you can actually go back and check out a couple episodes in previous seasons where we rail against this particular problem, where uh, a bunch of telecom companies were like, hey, America, we will give you internet in hard places if you give us money to do it. And America was like, yeah, that sounds good. That's the free market. And then the telecom companies were like, oh, the free market is also taking your money and not doing what we told you to do. (laughs) So 
so we just took the money and it was hard. So we didn't. I, I wish that Stephen were exaggerating. But that's I'm really, really basically how it actually went. It, yeah, even the language is like if you go back and check out like the filings and stuff, like it's it's not that different. So there's this context where rural internet was very hard. Chattanooga is not especially rural, which makes it even more frustrating because it's I mean it's not it's that. a reasonably sized American yeah, city. Yeah, and so uh, so they decided to build their own internet provider. We'll get back to that. China, on the other hand, is gigantic. It is somewhere between a seventh and an eighth of the world's population. Uh, China decided to build its own internet. Chris, how are these things different? I mean, one of them is, in fact, scale. Oh, <laughs> do tell more. Turns out, well, China's internet is, as you said, serving seven to eight. No, 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 no. Not serving a seven seventh or an eighth. There we go. <laughs> I'm it's sick, people. A billion, a billion to a billion point two right. people. S- somewhere in the realm of a seventh or an eighth of the world's population versus Chattanooga, which is not even serving a seventh or an eighth of the American population. It yeah. it might be serving a seventh or an eighth of the Tennessee population, it might. It perhaps. Might. Yeah. So the first thing to note here is simply that very substantial difference in scale and then, of course, there are all the other things that come out of the fact that China is a not exactly any more Maoist, but nonetheless very totalitarian regime, which is very interested in taking advantage of the fact that it owns your internet to supervise literally everything you do on it. And I mean everything you do on it. Yeah, they are a totalitarian capitalist economy, which is a, it, in in the history of totalitarian regimes probably the most successful totalitarian capitalism mm-hmm. that's happened but that doesn't make it less totalitarian right chattanooga is not particularly interested in policing what you do on the internet chattanooga said hey we want our own internet provision because nobody'll give it to us here's a fat dumb pipe of whatever 100 megabit or gigabit ethernet no no, no. it's it's gigabit. There you like go. the base level is one gigabit down and one gigabit up. Like it's it's real full one hundred percent gigabit, and that's and that's the lowest level. That's like the that's the base level. That's not like the optimum level. Like I would have to pay to the optimum level here in Phoenix, Arizona, the ninth largest metro in America, or whatever. And Chattanooga's like, yeah, we'll just give this to people for the baseline because we feel like that's a good thing to do for people. Yeah, it is, isn't it? (laughs) And so good a thing was it to do for people that all the surrounding rural-ish communities outside Chattanooga said, hey, we can't get them to build here either. Can we pay you to do this? And Chattanooga said, sure, great, we'll do that. And then the telecom sued because they were unhappy with this quote unquote competition. And competition. Chattanooga's like, guys, you won't you build it there. <laughs> I wish you well, could see and, Stephen and, like, and me flailing at the camera, dear listeners. <laughs> well here's the deal. Like what do telecoms not want? Only what the free market wants to do. Competition. <laughs> That's literally the thing. This is what we do here. Uh, so let it never be said, dear listeners, that winning slowly is against the free market and competition. We literally want competition. It's just that the free market doesn't want competition sometimes. And we are right. against that. So we are right. against profit making because of regulatory capture. Get on. Right. Uh, but China. But China. China is not exactly a picture of local internet, even though there's a sense in which it's localized. Well, so it. So here's the distinctions that I wanted to make. Like, yes, Chattanooga, awesome. 
American Telecom's bad. <laughs> but the thing I want to note about Chattanooga is that they took matters into their own hands. And they said, we're going to localize this because it would be good for our people. Right. China, on the other hand, <laughs> took the internet and said, we're going to localize this because it would be good for the government. It would be bad for people, but it would be better for us. And so these two different ways of localizing, because China, for all intents and purposes, has a basically different internet it does. than we do. Like there are parts of it, it's like a Venn diagram at this point, right? Like there's parts of it that like that that are the same, but there are big chunks that just don't cross over, partially because on one side there are things that are blocked in China. Right. And then on the other side, there's things that are created in the Chinese language, and Americans, most of them, don't speak Mandarin nor any of the other Chinese dialects, and right. so they can't read Santa Vebo uh, posts. And so, uh, which is basically the uh, the Chinese version of like it's kind of a cross between like Twitter and Facebook somehow, with some WeChat thrown in, but whatever. <laughs> Everything has some WeChat thrown in. Let's be honest. Well, you know. So there's effectively like two different internet's going on with the Venn diagram in the middle. And the Chinese government has been making that happen more and more because they want to control what their people see. So A, the obvious connection here is that like, oh, like government over here, bad government over there, good. Like maybe we just need better governments. I mean, that's definitely a takeaway from this episode. But another thing that we should look at and that I think is the danger that we were talking about at the beginning when we're talking about localism versus scale when it comes to positives and negatives is that when you put a push to local, you can go local, but what happens after that is the big question. Because Chattanooga, on one hand, seems really benevolent, seems like a really good thing that they're trying to do. And China, on the other hand, seems super not benevolent. <laughs> but at its core, the technical aspects of big dumb pipes and and packet snooping aside, at its core, they're largely doing the same thing. They're controlling the ways that their people can access the internet. Now, obviously, there's distinctions on authoritarianism and surveillance, and those are important. But no matter what aspects of it we're talking about, we're talking about these two governments decided that they were going to take the internet into their own hands because the alternative forces were not doing it the way they wanted to. I think the thing that points to is that the technical implementations are reflections of values. So you said something a minute ago that I, I want to tweak a little bit, which is to say that the Chinese government is doing these things for the good of the government and not for the good of the people. I agree with that assessment. However, I think most at least ideologically committed members of the party in China would disagree very strongly with that way of putting it. Because what you're actually getting at there is a deep disagreement in fundamental values. That's fair. That for ideologically committed members of the party in China, this is for the good of the people. But are there ideologically committed members of the party? That is an interesting question to which I am not a sufficient China scholar to answer. But I think the answer remains yes. I think that the answer has always been a mix the of next, the next time we have a China expert. On right. The show. Yes. But yes, mix. And that gets at, I think, what is the fundamental challenge for localist impulses? Now, granted, again, that China as a an example of a localist impulse is still at massive scale. But even setting that aside for the reasons Stephen just elucidated, the localist impulse is itself insufficient. It is not enough simply to devolve things down to the lowest level you can. It may be necessary. I tend to think that the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, 
that control should be at the lowest level it can, that society should tend to give authority and governance and implementation of solutions and all of these things to the lowest level possible, because people closest to the matter are usually going to be best equipped to resolve it. There's an interesting book I want to read, which I've read a summary of, which I will link to in the show notes, that argues that localist communities are often, by dint of their connection to each other, Small local communities don't tend as often to run afoul of places where game theory things show breakdowns, of places where we run into the tragedy of the commons and common goods get stomped on by the fact that individual incentives run toward the destruction of the common good, even if that is ultimately deleterious to everyone in the long run. Yeah, it's tough if the commons is actually like a place in the middle of town and like right. you're stomping on it and people are like, hey, stop. Right. That's and bad. and the people who are saying, hey, stop, aren't random strangers you don't know. They're your neighbor. And Steve is mad at you. Right. Or it's your grandmother and your grandmother <laughs> is mad at you. <laughs> and so... Granny! <laughs> there, there is perhaps a very high value to localism. But localism in and of itself, as we pointed out at the beginning of the episode, won't save you from sin. Uh, there is a deep, deep problem called humans are broken and bad, and humans try to do good things, and humans do often do many good things. We frame that in terms of the notion of common grace and whatnot. We talked about this a lot more last season in the first couple yeah. episodes, so I'll commend those to you. Yeah. But and for our for our non-religious listeners, you can just sub in selfishness here, because that's a pretty decent analog. Yes. Selfishness is a, is a major problem, regardless of whether or not you believe in the concept of sin. Right. When we look at these kinds of problems, we can say localism may be a necessary component, but it is minimally, I think it's fair to say that it is not a sufficient component. And so when we talk about the goodness and the value yeah. of subsidiarity and of moving things down to local levels where people actually know how to solve the problems in front of them, whether that's in the context of urban planning or whether that's in the context of fisheries and depletion of those things or AI, those things of fish in the ocean or whether it's yeah dealing with AI, that these things are happening at grand scales is indeed part of the problem. But the solution is not merely, okay, get that down at the local level and the problem will go away because, hey, guess what? People can still be racists and jerks and all sorts of other kinds of evil, wicked things at local levels. Fisheries. Right. And so there's also the necessity of, as we talked about so much last season, forming virtuous people in those local communities. It's a both and, not a one yes. or the other. And I think it's also important to note that a lot of communities, when they self-develop, if they're not intentionally trying to become a ethically oriented community, they just won't set up the ethical bounds of this community. Right. Sometimes this is potentially a good thing, if they're, trying, if they're intending to have some sort of open dialogue between different types of ethical structures and the dialogue of those types of things is part of what the community is about, that's well and good. But a lot of places, I mean, I'm, I'm loathe to say this, but like this is partly what makes utopian communities as effective as they are slash aren't, is that <laughs> utopian communities set out from the beginning, here are the rules of what we do here. And you get kicked out if you're not part of our utopia by not following our rules. And that gets really messy really quickly and 
it's yeah. Right. So I'm not necessarily lauding the concept of a utopian community, except in the fact that when they go into building one of those, with exceptions, obviously, but a lot of them go in purposely with what if we did things X way. Right. Right. Like they're I'm thinking of some exceptions that I won't name right now, <laughs> obviously, but a lot of them that are planned utopian communities go in thinking about the ethics of what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, what they're going to live. And maybe it's a really bad set, but it's what they're doing. I think that there's a lot of communities that form on the internet and elsewhere that do not do this sort of work. And so they don't have an underlying sort of ethical frame. And then when things like this come up, there's no way to police. There's, right. there's no way to adjust. There's no way to navigate because there is no underlying set of principles. And this is ostensibly, obviously, I'm about to say something that a lot of people are about to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. But this is ostensibly why denominations and religions as a whole have a leg up on this sort of thing is because ostensibly they have a set of commitments that they can adhere to and can adjudicate these sorts of issues immediately. Yes, we do it badly. Not gonna. Not <laughs> gonna try. Brokenness. Not gonna try to defend a perfect analog no. here. But that is part of what the goal of a denomination is. And there are obviously more open or more closed denominations in mm -hmm. terms of how the rules work. I was recently uh, introduced to the concept of Methodist polity in the extreme, and whoa, I thought <laughs> Presbyterians were were intense, but yo. <laughs> So there's plenty of space in denominations and in religious communities to then go forward and say, okay, here's our underlying principles. Here's how they apply to this local situation, um, to this sort of particular issue that we're having. And so I, we, I, there's a little sandwich here going on of like, hey, didn't you just say subsidiarity? Why are you talking about denominations? It's like the opposite of subsidiarity. And we're like, yeah, that's true. But like subsidiarity also has to have some sort of underlying principles, as we just said. And those underlying principles sometimes can be generated from the bottom up, but right. often in successful communities are generated from the top down and they're applied into a local context. And what's more, subsidiarity does not entail there being no higher order structures. Yeah, that's true. The Catholic Church being a perfect example. <laughs> exactly. So it does not require that if like Stephen and me, you're a Presbyterian, you say Presbyterians are bad and National Assemblies are worse because you want most of the things that happen in the life of your church to be limited to your local church. Rather, what it says is that normally local churches should run their own budget and handle their own matters of church discipline issues where you're saying, hey, you've gone really off the rails because you're abusing someone in your family. We're going to call you to repentance and also call the police and get that taken care of. Amen. Because here's the thing. Sometimes churches don't call that person to repentance and don't call the police, and the presbytery exists then to step in as the backstop for that and say, no, this is wrong. We're going to call you to repentance and call the police. And by the way, as an aside for our listeners out there, if there's someone in your church who's abusing people, you call them to repentance and you call the police. These things aren't in contradistinction to each At other. Same time. That shouldn't need to be said, but unfortunately, it often needs to be said. So just in case you were wondering, that's how you do that. That's how that's how justice and mercy work at the same right. time. Right, like exactly. And again, if there's a presbytery that's going off the rails and denying the fundamentals of the Christian faith, which is a thing that happens sometimes, a national assembly exists to say, hey, kids, you need to stop that. Or if a presbytery is covering up abuse locally, which is sadly a thing that happens, the National Assembly can be there to say, Yo, don't make me stop, stop this that. car. 
and call the police if need be, and, and so on. Exactly. And even above in our structures of government, even above a national assembly, the state and national governments exist to be a backdrop and a backstop to those things. And the goal at every layer along the way is to say this in a healthy local context will get handled, but sometimes the local contexts aren't healthy. And so having higher order structures that see their job, not as we will determine everything on the ground level everywhere locally all the time, but rather we are the backstop to help when things go awry locally. That kind of restraint and back and forth and interplay, it also lets localities say, hey, we need help. We're trying to figure out how to handle this thing. And we see that you three groups over there, you other cities or whatever, have gotten a handle on this. Help us out. And that can happen at a state level or even at times states saying to each other at a national level. This is in some sense the idea of federalism as it was originally designed. I was about to say, some of you may be saying you're just describing government. This is interesting. <laughs> Correct. But the point is – But not merely government. Not merely Lots government. of other structures too. But also that saying what the ideal is – a, does not mean that the actuality of that occurs. <laughs> B, does not mean that we shouldn't always be working towards that. And C, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be reminded of that frequently right. so that we don't end up with either local organizations being like, you know what, federalism, forget it. Or the government being like, you know what, federalism, forget it. Like There has to be a continual back and forth, mm -hmm. a reiterating of these underlying ideals, of these underlying statements. We just talked about the underlying ideals of government of, of a federalist sort of subsidiary focused government but there are other sorts of underlying principles for other sorts of underlying tensions and problems and we're actually in the next episode going to talk about how uh the the underlying tenets of uh a particular denomination reflect on how they deal with ai and that's right. a particular direction that i think a lot more organizations should go in setting those underlying principles, applying those underlying principles, saying, here's what we want to do locally. How does this fit into the overall structure of where we exist? And obviously, in some places that are very rural, the idea of federalism is, is a big federalism and that there's a big gap between mm -hmm. the local and the and the federal but if you're in washington dc like the gap between like the local and the federal is very close like geographically <laughs> and conceptually like it's it's a very much different context so as an aside my friends in the beltway tell me that that gets really weird <laughs> i'm sure it does yeah i have family that live there and it gets real weird for them so all of that to say that local as chris noted is perhaps necessary, but is not enough. Right. It, is, it is not all of what you need. You need underlying principles. And the underlying principles that we've just been espousing in relation to government have to do with subsidiarity. That's not the only sort of underlying principle you can have. But it's the right one. Well... <laughs> Heyo, <laughs> um, I was I was talking about underlying principles in other areas of life, like AI. But you can go there, uh, you can throw down, and so learning and developing those things in community, applying them to the local context, building that out across whatever sort of right. size of federalism you may have, is a way that you can avoid rushing down towards localism and encountering all of human brokenness and having no way out of that particular aspect and then having your community fold. 
because the history of utopian communities is folding. And the last note I'll add there is that insofar as our listeners are inclined, perhaps some of our Christian listeners in particular, to consider things like the Benedict Option and the formation of local communities dedicated to the formation of virtue and virtuous communities and virtuous local life, we think that is good. But you have to go in with your eyes open. Those can't be utopian communities. And in a Christian sense, if they are, you're doing it wrong because that's not how our theology works, guys. But well, there actually, is, I mean, in the macro sense, yes, but monasticism can be debated and its virtues are important. So I'll yes. give you a rain check on that one. <laughs> we keep coming back to monasticism, people. It's going to keep coming up. Yeah, well, it's an important context for what we're talking about. Yes. The the big thing to frame there is that insofar as we do that work of forming those communities, whether it's as prophetic witness, as we've mentioned before, in the context of monastic communities, or whether it's simply trying to figure out what that looks like in suburban life in America, which is in some ways an even harder question. And the one that Chris and I are (laughs) grappling with every day (laughs) at this point. Figuring out those things and doing it with intentionality in these ways is important. Recognizing its limits is also important, and recognizing how those things can feed into each other in good ways up and down those lines of subsidiarity is, we think, necessary. It's important to note that the local is good, but it's not enough. And having underlying principles that help you address when it's not enough will help your local community, whether that's suburban or rural or what have you. The song at the beginning of the episode was Bali by Ryan Dugray. Thank you for letting us use it, Ryan. Uh, Please don't use it without permission. We used it with permission. Thanks, as always, to all of our sponsors, including this month, especially Nathaniel Blaney, who is sponsoring it, the We Shout You Out on Every Episode tier. You can, of course, sponsor the episode yourself, not just the episode. In fact, at this point, you can't sponsor this episode, but you can sponsor future episodes. I mean, you can go back in time and sponsor this episode. (laughs) If if you you do that, we want to know about your time travel machine. Well, I mean, you can give us money for a previous episode. We'll make it happen, You want to give us money? We'll do it. <laughs> Patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly or time machine slash winning time slowly. Time machine. Yes. A time and B time. <laughs> if you have comments or thoughts or ideas, we'd love to hear them. We received a great email uh, from one of our listeners recently about postmodernism that I really enjoyed responding to. Um, you can tweet at us at winning slowly, uh, at Chris Kreitcho, at Scaradini. Or you can send us an email at hello at winningslowly.org. We will slowly, as is our Malou, respond to you. But we haven't yet just failed to respond to somebody, except there is one outstanding at tweet at us that I'm still pondering. So <laughs> that particular person who knows who they are, like, why haven't they gotten back to me? I'm still thinking about that. Still it's thinking been a while, about it. But I don't have an underlying statement on the good from winning slowly yet. So we'll get there. We'll get there. But we're still thinking about it. So if you're listening, we haven't forgotten. Until next time, thanks for listening.